Welcome to this episode of Saintly Witnesses, where I talk to the Catholic behind the account. Today I'm speaking with Meg Hunter Kilmer, who's going to come talk about her discipleship ministry and give her faith, uh, cradle Catholic upbringing. So thank you for coming on and sharing this information. I am so excited to be here with you. Yes. So a little bit of background about Meg. You know, after receiving two degrees in teaching for five years, she decided to leave her job, put everything in her car and embrace, you know, a radical form of discipleship where she could travel across the country and speak to anybody who was willing to listen. So that's what she does full time since 2012. And I thought it would be cool to hear her side of the story and also get this cradle Catholic reversion story that she had. So let's get started. Um, So talk about um, your cradle Catholic upbringing. Like how was it and what happened that caused a reversion? Yeah. So I grew up um, in the eighties and nineties and so sort of experienced Catholicism in, in that area, you know, parents were doing the best that they could. Right. I think sort of all across the country, at least in the eighties and nineties, but there weren't a lot of resources. There weren't a lot of people who were saying like, Hey, you need to pray with your kids. You need to talk to them about your relationship with Jesus. So I was raised going to mass on Sundays, um, baptized when I was a baby, went to my first confession. I would say I made my first confession, but I lied in confession to the priest, um, which is a mortal sin. Uh, so that's not awesome. Um, so I was in a state of mortal sin by the time I was seven and, you know, I don't know if you've ever been in a state of unrepentant mortal sin. I hope not. Um, but if you have, you sometimes know that it just sort of snowballs, right? Like things just seem less bad. And, you know, I'm 10 years old going to private school in the suburbs, right? There's not so much that I can get involved in, but I just kept piling sin on top of sin until pretty soon I couldn't see God the other side. So I was 11 years old. I was an atheist. I said, there is no God. Anyone who believes in God is an idiot. Uh, I was, I've always been very focused on being smarter than everybody else. And so I was like, oh, Christians are dumb, right? That's a thing. Uh, so that's kind of one of, my, one of my pet causes is to make sure that everybody knows we're not anti-science and we're not anti-intellectual. Because at, at 11, I was like, well, this is what it is to be a Christian and I'm not that. So I'm out. Um, and then I got confirmed because that's what you do, right? And then I got dragged on a confirmation retreat. And I was like, this thing is so stupid. Like, and to be fair, it was youth ministry in the 90s, right? So, you know, it was a lot of the matrix and a lot of Enya. I don't know if you remember Enya from retreats back in the day, but, you know, not the most moving spiritual music I've ever heard in my life. And I was a 13 year old punk, right? So I'm just rolling my eyes so hard. I am hurt in my head. And uh, you know, we're going through this examination of conscience at one point. And I was like, you can't tell me how to live my life. It is my life. It's my body. It's my choice. I'm going to do what I want when I want. You don't own me, right? Like all the sass in the world bundled into my 13 year old self. And then one by one, every girl in my small group started going to confession. And I was like, if I don't go to confession, no one will be my friend, which is decidedly not a thing, right? Nobody was looking at me like, um, I'm sorry, we're only friends with people who avail themselves of sacramental absolution. Like nobody cared about the fate of my immortal soul. I got up and went out of imaginary peer pressure. And I think God in his mercy was like, baby girl, good enough. Like usually we're looking for contrition, but we will take this in these circumstances. Cause I went in thinking, I'm just going to say a couple of things to some priest move the heck on with my life. And, and the Holy Spirit was like, mm, yeah, here's the thing is you're not talking to some priest. 
you're kneeling at the foot of the cross, giving Jesus the hammer that you used to nail him there. And I was so overwhelmed by his mercy and his goodness. I started to weep. I was crying so hard. I couldn't breathe. God bless father Mark Moreni. He kept interrupting me to change the subject so I could calm down enough to breathe. And, you know, I walked out of that confessional and I was just like, okay, like this is clearly real. And if this is real, it's worth everything. And everything about my life has to change. My priorities have to change the way that I spend time. You know, and I made all these resolutions, which I think is a really beautiful thing to do on a retreat. And looking back on them now, I'm like, oh my gosh, I was going to pray for 10 minutes a day. Like that was huge. I'd never prayed before in my life. But now I'm like, if I only spent 10 minutes in prayer a day, I would have so much free time, you know? Um, And I I was going to go to daily mass once a month, right? Like big things for a 13 year old who'd been an atheist 20 minutes earlier. And, you know, I've been an impossible jerk uh, since then, but I have never been an apostate. So there's a lot of grace in that. That was good to hear. Um, So you've been on both sides of the believing spectrum. So what would you say to somebody who is discerning the Catholic church and who thinks, hey, this may be the church for me? Somebody who already loves Jesus? Right. Okay. Um, I mean, I think that it kind of depends where you're coming from, right? Like I tend to be very intellectual in my approach to the faith. And so I'm one where I'm like, really the question for me is how do you know which books belong in the Bible? Because the Catholic church claims the authority to tell you what the canon of scripture is. And other than the Orthodox, no other church claims that authority, you know, and it's not even a question of who has the authority so much as like, if your church doesn't even claim it, where do you get that list from? And so for me, cause there are definitely moments I love scripture. I have read the Bible. I'm about to finish my 19th time through cover to cover. And there are definitely moments that I'm reading, you know, parts of St. Paul where you're like, Ooh, that doesn't totally seem to jive with a the theology that I, that I've been taught. Right. And you have to, you have to push into that and see how it all hangs together. But there are definitely moments where I'm like, I don't know about this Catholic church. And I'm like, but hang on. Like if, if the church doesn't have the authority to tell me X, Y, and Z, the church doesn't have the authority to determine the canon of scripture. And if the church doesn't have the authority to determine the canon of scripture, there is no canon of scripture, right? We, we generally hear about this infallible book, but it's, it's a a fallible collection of infallible books, unless you have an infallible authority to tell you which books belong in the Bible. And so intellectually for me, that's what it comes down to is that there has to be an authoritative church because the Bible does not claim to, to give you a, a table of contents infallibly, right? If we're talking not so much intellectually as spiritually, it's the Eucharist. It's always, always the Eucharist that Jesus said, I will not leave you orphans. I will come for you in John 14, 18. And he comes for us and he waits for us in the blessed sacrament alone and rejected till the end of time. And, you know, there are a lot of things I think, especially in recent years in the American Catholic Church, just looking at abuse and cover up and our, you know, the church's refusal to respond to crises of the day and, you know, not having a prophetic witness when it comes to um, abuses against immigrants or against race or of racism in the church um, and in the world. There are times when you're like, why, why would I not pick an easier church? Why would I not pick a church with fewer skeletons in its closet? And it comes down to the Eucharist that like, there are a lot of ugly things that happen in the name of Holy Mother Church that are 
evil and vile and that break the heart of God. But this is where Jesus is truly present, body, blood, soul, and divinity. And I, I will endure anything to be with him. Okay. That's really good wisdom. So let's go to the next part. So I mentioned in the beginning that you had two degrees and you were a teacher for a while, for like five years. Um, What influenced you to give all that up and just embrace um, being a missionary? Yeah. So um, it is not the life that I would have chosen for myself. I am not I'm not a bohemian person. I'm not phlegmatic. I'm not a go with the flow. I'm super type A and I always have been. Um, And I have for the last eight and a half years been living out of a car. I haven't had a home address since 2012. I've been homeless and unemployed essentially for the majority of my adult life at this point, which is not a thing that I ever would have signed up for. and I was, I was talking to someone the other day and I said, there is nothing about my life that I would have chosen except for him and he's worth it. So I was teaching. Um, I had taught high school religion for five years and I knew that God was calling me out of the classroom. I felt a lot of anxiety when I prayed about staying in the job that I was in. I felt a lot of peace when I prayed about leaving. And so I was like, okay, so I pull out my Excel spreadsheet with all of the different schools that I want to teach at and their average SAT and their dress code and how many saints went there because I'm insane. And I think in spreadsheets, this is, (laughs) this is my preferred way of approaching life. And I was like, I guess I should pray about not teaching. Like, that's not a thing, right? I'm obviously, this is all I've ever wanted to do. It's all I've ever trained for. And I felt this resounding peace, uh, which is a, this is an approach to discernment that really only works if you're in a state of grace and really only works if you're being deliberate about spending time in prayer every day, not just to figure things out, but just to love on Jesus. Uh, But when you have that relationship built there, you can sort of pursue this question of where, where is their peace and where is their anxiety and what is the Lord speaking to me through that? So I was like, okay, like there's a lot of peace in the idea of not teaching, which is insane because what else am I supposed to do? And I was talking to a priest friend, like I've got a master's degree in theology that and a winning personality will get you a second interview at McDonald's, right? This is not a lucrative degree. And he was like, well, you're good at public speaking. You've been wanting to do more of that. And I was like, that's cute, father. You can't just quit life and be a public speaker. And I took it to prayer and I just felt like the Holy spirit was saying, tell me why not. And I, I don't generally, I shouldn't say, I don't generally, I don't hear words when I talk or when I pray. Some people do. And that's awesome. But you know, sometimes you just know what the Lord is speaking to you. And I'm sitting there like crazy type a super achievement oriented. And I literally could not come up with a reason not to be homeless and unemployed. And I'm, I'm looking ahead to my high school reunion at the number one high school in America where literally a dozen of my classmates work for NASA. And I was like, yeah, I should totally go and tell them I live in a car. Like, that'll be great. And I knew that that was not for me. Like, there's no way I would have come up with this plan or been at peace with it. And I find that when you're, when you feel really drawn to something that you wouldn't naturally be inclined to, you got to listen to that. And so I started, I thought it was going to be for two months. Uh, it's been eight and a half years, 50 states and 25 countries. So apparently I'm really good at the what of discernment, but not so great at the how long. Well, that's an impressive um, mileage that you have across the country yeah. and across the world. So that's really impressive. Um, so let's go to the next question. You know, you refer to yourself as a hobo missionary. And for me, I think about the apostles in the first century and they, they were kind of like hobos in a way. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, do you feel 
a connection to like the apostolic roots of the Catholic church with your ministry, if that makes you know, sense. For sure. Um, it's interesting because I don't really know anybody who's doing what I do now. Every once in a while, I'll meet someone who does it for like six months or whatever. Uh, and so for a while, I was kind of like, Jesus, I just feel like I'm I'm running blind, you know, like I don't have anybody to look up to. And Jesus was like, baby, how long you think I didn't have a home? And I was like, oh, oh, yeah, that's like the whole it's like the whole thing you did. And he's like, uh-huh. Like son of man had no place to lay his head. And I was like, oh yeah. So that was really encouraging just considering that I was walking alongside Christ who had that experience of homelessness, you know, and it's sort of a tricky word to use because I don't want to appropriate the struggle of people who don't have homes because of circumstances or because our society doesn't adequately provide for people or because of mental health issues or whatever. But there is something really profound to years and years of not having any place that's yours, not having any place where you don't feel at least a little bit like an intruder. Um, And so looking at the way that Jesus experienced that, and then I am really close to St. Paul, which is funny because we have, we have very much the same life. We have very much the same personality. I think in real life, we would probably clash a lot, but in the beatific vision, we get along great. Um, We're just, I think we would probably butt heads in many ways, but looking at St. Paul um, and looking at his relationship with St. Barnabas, who is one of my very best St. friends and seeing that while this is not a natural way to live uh, by grace, it can be, supernatural and bear fruit abundantly for the church and for me Mm -hmm. that's very much like a powerful testimony right there so thank you for sharing that so my next question is you know when you speak across the world and in the country you want others to um, seek after holiness and not just be a get out of hell free card type (laughs) christian so how do you empower audiences to heed the call to follow God and discern uh, his will for it, for their lives? I would say that in general, I have sort of two major things that I'm trying to convince people to do. And I've got all kinds of different angles that I come at it, but really what I want more than anything, I want people to love Jesus like crazy. And I think that the two most important things that we can do in order really to make space for that relationship is first of all, to make a good confession. One of my favorite things in life is convincing people to go to confession because I know in my life, it really, every good thing in my life is the root is rooted in one good confession when I was 13 years old. And I know that, you know, I'm a, I'm a good saleswoman. I can convince people of a lot of things in the moment, but it has no staying power. Grace has staying power and that sacrament has staying power. And if I can help you to make a good confession, uh, that's going to do incredible things in your soul. And then the second thing is getting people to commit to daily silent prayer. I think that you know, as a church, we have so many different devotions and sacramentals and beautiful ways of growing closer to the Lord through reading scripture, through reading the lives of the saints, through praying the rosary, all of these things. And they're amazing and they're incredible gifts, but sometimes we use them as noise to fill our prayer life so that we don't have to deal with what Jesus is actually trying to do. And so I really encourage people, yes, like pray the rosary and say your novenas and obviously read scripture. It is the word of God, but make sure that every day you are making time to just be awkward and uncomfortable in silence before the Lord. And I usually recommend that people start with 15 minutes. That's 1% of your day. 
So when you look at it that way, it becomes a little bit embarrassing if you don't think that you can make time for 1% of your day to be given to God. The beautiful thing about silent prayer is that, you know, for all you're distracted and you're frustrated and you're not getting anything out of it, you can't be bad at silent prayer because you can't be good at it because it's not about you, right? Contemplation is only ever a gift from God. And so all you can do is show up. All you can do is make space. So me, every day, I pregame with coffee because I know myself. And then I sit in front of a tabernacle and I stare. And I'm distracted and I'm frustrated and I think I'm having visions, but it turns out they're dreams because there's no amount of coffee that can fuel my ridiculous life. But at the end of my time there with Jesus, I'm like, look, I showed up. And my job was not to have a revelation. My job was to show up. And if if I'm going to show up every day for that set amount of time that I've that I felt called to, for the next 50 years and the Lord says nothing, like praise God, because my job was not to be a mystic. My job was to show up. That's two good points right there for spiritual formation. So thank you for sharing that. So my last question is just a, a little fun question I like to ask um, now. Uh, I know that you on social media always float and pass around your saint descriptions and, oh, five saints for mental health, five saints for this cause or that cause. So who's a famous or a saint that you look to for guidance? And tell me a little bit about them. Oh, man, dozens and dozens and dozens. Um, The one who has really been uh, speaking to my heart recently is Blessed Columba Kang Wan Suk. So she is a Korean woman. Um, She was she died in 1801. I want to say she was born in 1761 because I think she was 40 when she died. Uh, and she, you know, 1761, the gospel didn't get to Korea until 1785. So she was raised a pagan. Um, and actually her parents weren't married. Her mother was a concubine. Um, and so she's dealing with sort of those complexities of family relationship, which I think so many of us are in some capacity. And then she married a man whose wife had died. So now she's like, married in and she's a stepmother and like just all of this sort of like family dysfunction that she's dealing with. And she discovered Jesus and she became this incredible evangelist and she converted her mother-in-law and she converted her stepson, blessed Philip Hong Pilju, and she could not convert her husband. And he was, I mean, he's kind of a disaster of a man. And eventually he was like, you know what, I'm, I'm done with this Jesus thing. I'm leaving you. I'm moving in with my concubine. And I think regardless of how frustrating a marriage has been, because it doesn't sound like there was abuse there, that's a different situation. But regardless of how, how painful and frustrating a marriage has been, the end of a marriage, there's always a mourning there. Even if the whole marriage was awful, you're like, but it might not have been. Like it could have been good. And I think especially in this society where like obviously remarriage is not going to be an option for her, there's sort of this feeling of like, what even happened? Like, this is not my fault. Why has my life turned out this way? And I think so many of us have that experience in so many different arenas in our, in our lives where we're like, what is even going on? Like, Jesus, where are you in this? Um, and I think that Columba, you know, she's looking at her, the wreckage of her life and she's asking, Lord, where are you in this? And all of a sudden she has a realization that there was a law in Korean society that noble women's homes couldn't be searched if they didn't have husbands living there. And so she was like, oh, 
I'm going to move the church into my house. And so the church is persecuted and she moves like dozens of people into her house. She, there's um, one priest in Korea for six years of the first 50 years that are Catholics in Korea. There's one priest for six years total. And it's blessed James Ju Wenmo, who was an undocumented immigrant from China. Um, and she moves him in and she like smuggles him around the country and she starts a community of consecrated women. And she's this great catechist and she's converting people all over. And it's because in the midst of the wreckage of her life, she was able to look to the Lord and say, I still trust you and I still love you. So her mother-in-law moved with her, her stepson becomes a blessed along with her. And she basically runs the entire church in Korea for years until she was arrested and martyred. Um, and I think she's amazing because she's this incredibly strong woman and she's a preacher and she's a catechist at a time when women in that culture really weren't allowed to do that other than her. Um, and she's, she's brave and she's brilliant, but she's also a woman who looked at a life that didn't go the way she was expecting it to and said, I trust that God is still working. I trust that he is still good and was able to find the fruit. Um, and I think so many of us, we just need that encouragement that even if we don't see what it is that God has been doing, he is working and he is bringing good out of our suffering when we unite it to his. Very important and, you know, inspiring saint right there. So thank you for sharing how that saint has influenced your life. Well, this conversation was definitely fruitful and I appreciate you coming on and sharing um, your ministry. You guys can tune in to the next episode for Saintly Witnesses. Mm -hmm.